Lupin's marriage. Two weeks after that, by dint of patient perseverance, I had succeeded in filing through the bars of my porthole, and I could have escaped that way, only, though I am a good swimmer, I soon grow tired. I had therefore to choose a moment when the yacht was not too far from the land. It was not until yesterday that, perched on my chair, I caught sight of the coast, and in the evening at sunset I recognized, to my astonishment, the outlines of the Chateau de Sarzo, with its pointed turrets and its square keep. I wondered if this was the goal of my mysterious voyage. All night long we cruised in the offing, the same all day yesterday. At last, this morning, we put in at a distance which I considered favorable, all the more so as we were steaming through rocks under the cover of which I could swim unobserved. But just as I was about to make my escape, I noticed that the shutter of the hatch, which they thought they had closed, had once more opened itself and was flapping against the partition. I again pushed it ajar, out of curiosity. Within arm's length was a little cupboard, which I managed to open, and in which my hand, groping at random, laid hold of a bundle of papers. This consisted of letters, letters containing instructions addressed to the pirates who held me prisoner. An hour later, when I wriggled through the porthole and slipped into the sea, I knew all. The reasons for my abduction, the means employed, the object in view, and the infamous scheme plotted during the last three months against the Duc de Sazo Vendôme and his daughter. Unfortunately, it was too late. I was obliged, in order not to be seen from the yacht, to crouch in the cleft of a rock and did not reach land until midday. By the time that I had been to a fisherman's cabin, exchanged my clothes for his, and come on here, it was three o'clock. On my arrival, I learned that Angelique's marriage was celebrated this morning. The old duke had not spoken a word. With his eyes riveted on the strangers, he was listening in ever-increasing dismay. At times, the thought of the warnings given him by the prefect of police returned to his mind. They're nursing you, Monsieur le Duc. They are nursing you. He said, in a hollow voice, Speak on. Finish your story. All this is ghastly. I don't understand it yet, and I feel nervous. The stranger resumed. I am sorry to say the story is easily pieced together and is summed up in a few sentences. It is like this. The Count d'Andrezy remembered several things from his stay with me and from the confidences which I was foolish enough to make to him. First of all, I was your nephew, and yet you had seen comparatively little of me, because I left Sarzo when I was quite a child, and since then our intercourse was limited to the few weeks that I spent here fifteen years ago when I proposed for the hand of my cousin Angelique. Secondly, having broken with the past, I received no letters. Lastly, there was a certain physical resemblance between Dondrezy and myself, which could be accentuated to such an extent as to become striking. His scheme was built upon those three points. He bribed my Arab servants to give him warning in case I left Algeria. Then he went back to Paris, bearing my name, and made up to look exactly like me, came to see you, was invited to your house once a fortnight, and lived under my name, which thus became one of the many aliases beneath which he conceals his real identity. 
Three months ago, when the apple was ripe, as he says in his letters, he began the attack by a series of communications to the press. And, at the same time, fearing no doubt that some newspaper would tell me in Algeria the part that was being played under my name in Paris, he had me assaulted by my servants and kidnapped by his confederates. I need not explain any more in so far as you are concerned, uncle. The Duke of Sarzo Vendome was shaken with a fit of nervous trembling. The awful truth to which he refused to open his eyes appeared to him in its nakedness and assumed the hateful countenance of the enemy. He clutched his nephew's hands and said to him fiercely, despairingly, It's Lupin, is it not? Yes, uncle. And it's to him. It's to him that I've given my daughter. Yes, uncle, to him, who has stolen my name of Jacques d'Amboise from me and stolen your daughter from you. Angelique is the wedded wife of Arsène Lupin, and that in accordance with your orders. This letter in his handwriting bears witness to it. He has upset your whole life, thrown you off your balance, besieging your hours of waking and your nights of dreaming, rifling your townhouse, until the moment when, seized with terror, you took refuge here, where, thinking that you would escape his artifices and his rapacity, you told your daughter to choose one of her three cousins, Musi, Damboise, or Kaurs, as her husband. But why did she select that one rather than the others? It was you who selected him, uncle. At random? Because he had the biggest income. No, not at random, but on the insidious, persistent, and very clever advice of your servant, Hyacinthe. The Duke gave a start. What? Is Hyacinthe an accomplice? No, not of Arsène Lupin, but of the man whom he believes to be d'Amboise, and who promised to give him a hundred thousand francs within a week after the marriage. planned everything, foresaw everything. Foresaw everything, uncle, down to shamming an attempt upon his life so as to avert suspicion, down to shamming a wound received in your service. But with what object? Why all these dastardly tricks? Angelique has a fortune of eleven million francs. Your solicitor in Paris was to hand the securities next week to the counterfeit d'Amboise, who had only to realize them forthwith and disappear. But this very morning, you yourself were to hand your son-in-law, as a personal wedding present, 500,000 francs worth of bearer stock, which he has arranged to deliver to one of his accomplices at nine o'clock this evening, outside the castle, near the Great Oak, so that they may be negotiated tomorrow morning in Brussels. The Duke of Sarzo Vandome had risen from his seat and was stamping furiously up and down the room. At nine o'clock this evening, he said, we'll see about that. I'll have the gendarmes here before then. Arsène Lupin laughs at gendarmes. Let's telegraph to Paris. Yes, but how about the five hundred thousand francs? And still worse, uncle, the scandal? Think of this, your daughter... Angelique de Sarzovando married to that swindler, that thief. No, no, it would never do. What then? What? The nephew now rose, and, stepping to a gun rack, took down a rifle and laid it on the table in front of the duke. 
Away in Algeria, uncle, on the verge of the desert, when we find ourselves face to face with a wild beast, we do not send for the gendarmes. We take our rifle and we shoot the wild beast. Otherwise, the beast would tear us to pieces with its claws. What do you mean? I mean that over there I acquired the habit of dispensing with the gendarmes. It is a rather summary way of doing justice, but it is the best way, believe me, and today, in the present case, it is the only way. Once the beast is killed, you and I will bury it in some corner, unseen and unknown. And Angelique? We will tell her later. What will become of her? She will be my wife, the wife of the real D'Amboise. I desert her tomorrow and return to Algeria. The divorce will be granted in two months' time. The duke listened, pale and staring, with set jaws. He whispered, Are you sure that his accomplices on the yacht will not inform him of your escape? Not before tomorrow. So that, inevitably, at nine o'clock this evening, Arsene Lupin, on his way to the Great Oak, will take the patrol path that follows the old ramparts and skirts the ruins of the chapel. I shall be there, in the ruins. I shall be there, too, said the Duke de Sarzeau-Vendôme quietly, taking down a gun. It was now five o'clock. The Duke talked some time longer to his nephew, examined the weapons, loaded them with fresh cartridges. Then, when night came, he took D'Amboise through the dark passages to his bedroom and hid him in an adjoining closet. Nothing further happened until dinner. The duke forced himself to keep calm during the meal. From time to time he stole a glance at his son-in-law and was surprised at the likeness between him and the real d'Amboise. It was the same complexion, the same cast of features, the same cut of hair. Nevertheless, the look of the eye was different, keener in this case, and brighter. And gradually the duke discovered minor details which had passed unperceived till then and which proved the fellow's imposture. The party broke up after dinner. It was eight o'clock. The duke went to his room and released his nephew. Ten minutes later, under cover of darkness, they slipped into the ruins, gun in hand. Meanwhile, Angelique, accompanied by her husband, had gone to the suite of rooms which she occupied on the ground floor of a tower that flanked the left wing. Her husband stopped at the entrance to the rooms and said, I'm going for a short stroll, Angelique. May I come to you here when I return? Yes, she replied. He left her and went up to the first floor, which had been assigned to him as his quarters. The moment he was alone, he locked the door, noiselessly opened a window that looked over the landscape, and leaned out. He saw a shadow at the foot of the tower some hundred feet or more below him. He whistled and received a faint whistle in reply. He then took from a cupboard a thick leather satchel crammed with papers, wrapped it in a piece of black cloth, and tied it up. Then he sat down at the table and wrote, Glad you got my message, for I think it unsafe to walk out of the castle with that large bundle of securities. Here they are. You will be in Paris on your motorcycle in time to catch the morning train to Brussels, where you will hand over the bonds to Z, and he will negotiate them at once. A.L. P.S. As you pass by the great oak, tell our chaps that I'm coming. I have some instructions to give them. But everything is going well, 
No one here has the least suspicion.